invite you to turn with me in your Bibles, Romans chapter 11, as we continue in this series, Israel past, present, and future. Romans 11, verses 28 through 29. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. Though there is agreement among Bible-believing Christians concerning God's call of Israel, God's election of Israel as a covenanted nation in the Old Testament, where we find division among Christians and churches appears over whether Israel remains presently and will be in the future God's chosen people, a nation covenanted with God. There are three basic positions, different positions, one of which most Christians will hold. And there may be slight variations within these basic three positions, but these are the three basic positions. Uh, First position is uh, Israel is and always will be God's chosen people and covenanted nation. And there will be a distinct, and there is and there will be a distinct divine purpose that Israel has that's distinct from the church, Christ's church. Uh, That is called dispensationalism. This usually includes within dispensationalism the rebuilding, the future rebuilding of the temple with God's blessing and the reestablishing of the priesthood and the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. A second position is this. Israel, as a chosen people and a covenanted nation, is and will be in the future fully realized in Christ's church. The church is, in fact, the new Israel, where there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is no divine purpose in this position. There's no divine purpose for Israel as a covenanted nation now or in the future. Uh, This is often called supersessionism. Supersessionism. According to this position, the the new Israel uh, is a new Israel of Jew and Gentile, and it supersedes and is the fulfillment of all the promises of national blessing made to Israel in the Old Testament. Uh, In supersessionism, there really is no looking forward to anticipation of a national conversion of Israel uh, unto Christ. And then there is a third position. 
Israel is presently God's enemy and is presently under God's judgment due to its rejection of Jesus, Messiah. And yet Israel remains a covenanted people, albeit a, a covenant-breaking people, but will be converted and will be brought into Christ's church as a Christian nation in the future, as with all of the nations of the world. I'm going to call this third view covenantalism. I don't really have a title for it. That is my title. The third position, covenantalism. Which of these three positions does the Apostle Paul present to us in Romans 11, verses 28 through 29? That's what we want to answer in the sermon this Lord's Day as we consider the second sermon in the series. And the main points from our text are these. Number one, Israel as a nation, presently God's enemy. And the second main point, Israel as a nation, presently God's elect. You see, both of those are true. They're not contradictory. They seem, they may seem contradictory, but they're not contradictory to one another. They are actually complementary to one another. Because this is really the pattern that we see, is it not, in our own lives? Before we were converted individually, we were God's enemies. Romans 5.10, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. When we were unconverted, we were the enemies of God. And yet, at the same time, we, that we were God's enemies, we were God's elect. Chosen in Christ Jesus, according to Ephesians 1.4, chosen in Christ Jesus before the world began. God's enemies? Yes, when, before we were converted, and yet God's elect. Paul says the same thing is true of Israel as a nation. They are God's enemy as a nation presently, and yet they are God's elect as a nation. Well, let's explore this further. So the first main point, Israel as is a nation presently, God's enemy. Let me give just a, a very brief summary of Romans 11, which leading up to the verses that we are considering from our text today. You see, this is, Romans 11 is Paul's exposition of Israel's place in God's purpose and plan. In Romans 11, Paul responds to anticipated questions about Israel from Christians to whom he's writing in Rome. In Romans chapter 11, verse 1, I say then, have God cast away his people? This is an anticipated question from the believers in, in Rome that Paul is seeking to answer. 
In other words, is the fall of Israel final or is it temporary? Paul states in Romans 11.5 that presently there is a, a small remnant, a first fruits, if you will, a small remnant from Israel according to God's election that are being saved, among whom he includes himself. In Romans 11.5 he says, even so then at this present time also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. He includes himself in verse 1, For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. He's one of the remnant according to the election of God's grace, he says. But then in Romans 11, Paul contrasts this small remnant from uh, within Israel, of whom he includes himself, he contrasts that small remnant with the larger body of Israel that yet shall be converted to Jesus Christ in the future. In Romans 11, verse 12, Paul says, Now if the fall of them, that is the nation, the people of Israel as a whole, be the riches of the world, that is the blessings of the spiritual riches and blessings of God's covenant went to the world because Israel uh, fell away, uh, because they were cast away. We see, well, furthermore in verse 12, and the diminishing of them, the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. So Paul says, if the diminishing of those blessings to Israel have been taken from them and given to the Gentiles, how much more with the fullness when they, uh, as God's people, are restored, how much more the fullness of blessings that will accrue to them and to the whole world when they are brought to Jesus Christ. Verse 15. For if the casting away of them, that is of the Israel as a people collectively as a nation, if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, the gospel taken, gospel of reconciliation be being taken to the world, what shall be the receiving of them? What shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? When they are brought back in as a nation, what will be the condition of the world but like a resurrection throughout the whole world? A resurrection of God's gracious covenant and the blessings of the gospel throughout the whole world and every nation. <clears throat> Paul illustrates the relationship in Romans 11. He illustrates this relationship of Israel to Gentiles within God's plan by way of an olive tree, <clears throat> wherein the olive tree represents God's covenant uh, with his people, uh, the root of that olive tree, either being the patriarchs, being the root, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or the root being Jesus himself. <clears throat> Uh, 
again in Romans 11, verse 28, we read, as concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes, but notice, as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake, the patriarchs, for the sake of the patriarchs, the covenant made with them. So that could be the root. But also in Galatians 3.17, uh, it could be uh, that this covenant was made with uh, uh, Abraham. The covenant is made with Abraham was a, was a covenant made and confirmed in Jesus Christ. He is, in Romans 15, 12, called the root. Romans 15, 12 says, And again, Isaiah saith, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he that shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, and him shall the Gentiles trust. But whether it's, again, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's the root, or whether it's Jesus, this is a Christian covenant, as we noted in Galatians 3.17, that is made with Abraham. It's a Christian covenant. It's confirmed in Christ, Paul says. Paul says that certain of the natural branches, the uh, natural branches being Israel, were removed from the blessings of God's covenant when they rejected Christ and in their place was grafted in unnatural branches from among the Gentiles so that the Gentiles became uh, partakers of God's gracious covenant that was made with Israel. They became partakers of that gracious covenant. You remember when Jesus in Matthew 21, 43 says to the Jewish religious leaders, therefore say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. And so the, the kingdom, the covenants were taken from Israel and were given to a nation. They were uh, Gentile nations. Uh, Gentiles were brought into that covenant they are the unnatural, the wild olive uh, branches that are grafted into the same, not a different tree, but the same tree that the Jews were previously as a, as a people grafted into. And so again, there's this unity of, uh, uh, between the Old and the New Testament, there is this unity of covenantal continuation, the same covenant of grace represented by this olive tree. Branches that were in it, natural branches taken from it so that they do not enjoy for a period of time God's covenantal blessings while they are in unbelief, while they have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, unnatural branches, wild branches grafted into that same olive tree, same covenant of grace. But the hope of Israel's res restoration is found and later on in Romans eleven twenty three, where Paul says, and they also, meaning again, these natural branches that were removed from this olive tree, they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. And so he shall do. And then Paul states 
before we get to our text, just one other point about Romans 11 leading up to our text. Paul states that the blindness and that the rebellion of Israel will yet be removed. Their unbelief will yet be re removed in verse 25 of chapter 11. Paul says, For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. In verse 26, And so all Israel shall be saved. And so all Israel shall be saved. So this period of unbelief on the part of Israel, the blindness, the rebellion against Christ, that's presently the case. But the Lord is promising in Romans chapter 11 that there is coming a time in which Israel and that blindness and that unbelief will be removed. And Israel will become a Christian nation along with the nations of this world. Will be brought into the same church of Jesus Christ that we are a part of. Into the same covenantal blessings in the new covenant that we enjoy. They will be brought into Now Paul moves to answer as we get to our text, verses 28 and 29 of Romans 11. Paul moves to answer a possible objection that might arise from the believers, the Gentile believers in Rome. This is likely the objection that is behind what Paul says in verses 28 and 29. An objection, some, something like this. How can God yet show mercy to the nation of Israel when Israel has rejected and conspired with the Romans to crucify Christ, the Messiah, when they turned their backs upon the gospel offered to them and persecuted the apostles and the ministers of Christ who preached the gospel unto them? Is not the fact that Israel is Christ's enemy presently, that Israel is presently under God's righteous judgment enough to demonstrate that God's redemptive plan for the nation of Israel is already finished? That he doesn't have a future plan for them because he's judged them in, in such a conspicuous way? Paul answers that objection that possible objection in verses 28 through 29. And look at verse 28 again. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. That is touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake. In both parts of this verse, it's the same people that are in view. Those very same ones that are enemies presently are the very same ones that are elect. How is Israel the enemy of God at the present time? Paul says, as concerning the gospel. In other words, 
as concerning their present rejection of Jesus as Messiah, as their present unbelief in the gospel of Jesus Christ, as their hatred for the Lord, they have made themselves collectively as a people, as a nation, the enemy of God. They oppose God. If they oppose Jesus Christ, if they oppose the gospel, they oppose God. And therefore, God opposes them in their opposition and in their hatred of Jesus Christ and his gospel. Which is why Israel is presently under the judgment of the Lord. Why Israel as a people and as a nation is presently under the judgment of God. Look earlier in Romans 11, verses 7 through 10, how the Apostle Paul describes the judgment that has fallen upon Israel as a nation presently. What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. According as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear, unto this day. And David saith, Let their table be made a snare, and a trap, and a stumbling block, and a recompense unto them. Let their eyes be darkened, that they may not see, and bow down their back alway. That's presently the judgment that rests upon Israel. And that was especially made true or made conspicuous as the judgment prophesied by the Lord Jesus Christ fell upon uh, Israel as a people and as a nation in 70 AD when Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was destroyed and was subsequently, we'll look at this, uh, God willing, next Lord's Day, but that wasn't the only time that Israel was judged by the Romans. Altogether, there were four judgments that, that uh, fell upon Israel, three more judgments that fell upon Israel uh, as judgments from God. They even sought to uh, rebuild the temple, and God destroyed and uh, removed even that possibility of doing so, uh, so that the temple was not rebuilt. And we'll look at that, uh, God willing, next Lord's Day. But this, uh, again, even within Romans 11, we see how presently God's judgment has fallen upon Israel as a people and as a nation. But in God's most holy and wise plan, this present divine judgment upon Israel, Paul says, uh, is for your sakes. Uh, for you who are Gentiles, it's for your sakes that the judgment that fell upon Israel has brought the gospel to the Gentile nations. We benefit. We have been brought to Christ by virtue or by way of Israel being blinded, Israel being judged, and the Lord taking the gospel to the nations of the world for your sakes. This opened the door of salvation to the Gentiles. 
You remember Jesus went to the Jews first. He said, don't go into the way of the Samaritans or the Gentiles, but to the lost sheep of Israel. Take the gospel to them, the kingdom to them. Paul, likewise, in going into various cities, first took the gospel to the Jews. Again, as God's covenant people of old, the gospel was taken to them. Paul says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, that is, to the Gentiles. So the gospel was taken. God was, was, again, even though they had crucified the Lord Jesus, he was taking the gospel. His mercy was being extended to them. When the door closed, when they rejected it in various cities, when they turned their backs and persecuted those who brought the gospel, they turned to the Gentiles. And so this is turned out as a blessing for the Gentiles, Paul says. Thus, according to Paul, Israel, as a people and as a nation, in their present state of unbelief of Christ and of the gospel of Christ, are God's enemy, not his friend, are God's enemy. That doesn't, again, as we'll see, again, hopefully next Lord's Day, doesn't mean that we should uh, be those who feel compelled to bring our judgment upon Israel. Uh, that's not our uh, responsibility. That's God's. God brings his vindication, his judgment. Uh, we extend, we go out, we preach the gospel uh, to the Jews, uh, to those that we know. Uh, we, we pray for their conversion. We pray that they will be brought to Jesus Christ. So they are God's enemy presently, not his friend. They are covenant breakers, covenant breakers. And we'll talk again more about this next Lord's Day. Israel is a nation presently God's enemy, but second part of that verse, verse 28, Israel is a nation presently God's elect. And so we come to the second part of Paul's response to that same anticipated objection Notice this is a contrast with what he said earlier in the verse. And that contrast is introduced by the uh, adversative but. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake. The same people that are presently God's enemies, but nevertheless... They are God's elect for the sake of the fathers. In other words, despite the fact that presently Israel is a nation or God's enemy due to their rejection of Christ and his gospel, nevertheless, at the same present time, they are loved due to God having chosen them to be his covenant nation and people. The same kind of a relationship that God had with us individually. We were enemies of God at one time, and yet we were God's elect at the same time. 
God's election of Israel and the covenant made with the fathers, understand, is an election of love. In spite of their rebellion and being the enemy of God, nevertheless, there is yet the love of election through the fathers that rests upon Israel. Israel has broken, indeed, covenant with Jesus Christ. Who made, who was the one who made that covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? As we said in Galatians 3.17, that covenant made with, with Abraham was confirmed in Christ. It was a Christian covenant. They've broken the covenant with Jesus Christ, and yet Christ remembers his covenant made with Israel. He's not forgotten his covenant made with Israel. Many times in the Old Testament, God judged Israel. The northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, led them into captivity, dispersed them, and yet he promises that he will restore them. He did so under Ezra, Nehemiah, at the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, but again, Paul, speaking, says there is yet to come conversion to the nation of Israel. <clears throat> and for all of those, <clears throat> and there are many good, I believe good, uh, sound uh, teachers, past and present, that would look at verse 26 of Romans 11, and so all Israel shall be saved, and they would interpret all Israel there that is to be saved to be God's elect church, consisting of Jews and Gentiles. Paul, I would submit to you, here in Romans 11:28 states that the same Israel that is presently God's enemy is the very same Israel that is presently God's beloved by way of election. The elect remnant of individual Jews that were coming to, to faith in Jesus Christ uh, during the time of Christ and the apostles, during, even during Paul's time, among whom he counts himself, and are likewise coming to Christ presently, can, they, they cannot be considered God's enemy any longer. So when Paul says, as concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes, he cannot be thinking of the elect remnant that have come to Christ. He cannot be thinking, therefore, when he says, when Paul says, and so all Israel shall be saved, that all Israel is the church consisting of Jews and Gentiles, but is rather speaking here of a nation of Israel that are presently God's enemies coming to Christ. And so again, I, I would submit to you that that. Uh, when he is speaking here in verse 28, that he's not talking about the elect that are coming to Christ, the remnant 
that are coming to Christ, even at the time Paul is writing this, but he's speaking of the elect, election of the people of Israel as a whole, the nation of Israel, that are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Thus Paul, I believe, must have in mind in the salvation of all Israel, those who were in Paul's time presently, God's enemies. Those are the same people that will be saved in the future. The same body, the same uh, representative nation. And then Paul draws a conclusion in verse 29 from what he has just said. And that first word for in verse 29 uh, is is a particle that indicates Paul is drawing a conclusion uh, that he is about to summarize what he has said uh, just previously. And these are some concluding thoughts that Paul has with regard to the fact that Israel is presently God's enemy and yet presently God's elect. And then this is his conclusion in verse 29. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. Let's start with the word calling. This refers to uh, the same thing as them being God's elect. They were called as a nation by the Lord to be God's people. Once God calls a nation, a people, into a covenant relationship with himself, God, here Paul says, God will not terminate the covenant with them. They may break it, but he will not break it. Despite their sin, despite their hatred, despite their covenant breaking and rebellion, even to the point of partaking in the sin of Christ's crucifixion, God will not forget his covenant with Israel. Israel may forget, but God will not forget. And the same is true, dear ones, for those nations that are bound by the solemn league and covenant. We may forget that covenant, but God will not forget that covenant. And a nation that is bound in covenant with the Lord cannot escape that covenant cannot simply by way of their forgetfulness, by way of the rebellion and unbelief, release themselves from that covenant. A nation continues to be bound, or those nations continue to be bound, as Israel of old continues to be bound by that covenant, though it be a covenant-breaking nation, as we are a covenant-breaking nation, even now. What does Paul mean by gifts? The gifts and calling of God are without repentance. Verse 29, well, these gifts, these are the spiritual, these are the blessings associated with God's calling Israel to be his covenant nation, spiritual, uh, and there were also material blessings that were uh, made to Israel. But these blessings, uh, uh, Paul says, 
that were associated with the covenant that was made with Israel, they are as well without repentance. <clears throat> These blessings again are blessings that primarily and uh, that we find in the new covenant into which God's people presently have been brought into and uh, as well the, the blessings that Israel uh, shall be brought into. Uh, their covenant, uh, again, is not a different covenant as to the essence of that covenant than the covenant that, that uh, we have been brought into. It is essentially the same covenant as to substance. Paul says that both the gifts, that is the blessings of God's covenant with Israel and the calling to be God's people are without repentance. That is irrevocable. There cannot be a change made there as to the gifts and the calling of God. The unfaithfulness of Israel, dear ones, will not make God to be unfaithful to his covenant. That's the, that's the position, the third position that I mentioned at the outset of the sermon. That's the third position that I call covenantalism. Uh, that's the position I believe that is taught in Romans chapter 11. It's the position that I embrace. And uh, we'll, through this series, be uh, likewise citing various authors, even patristic authors, uh, from the years 100 uh, to 500, as well as Reformed uh, forefathers who likewise embraced the, the view, uh, the position that there is yet a future conversion of Israel as a nation that is to come. In fact, let me cite just a couple Reformed fathers uh, who held this position of what I called uh, covenant, covenantalism, and uh, again, they were not dispensationalists. Uh, these were men who were not dispensationalists, who viewed that there was a, 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 an entirely different program, purpose, and plan for Israel than from the church. Uh, these were reformed uh, fathers. A future hope of Israel's national conversion did not originate with dispensationalists. However, these Reformed Fathers, just a couple of them here, they believed converted Israel would be united into the same olive tree from which Israel had been removed and which Gentiles have been brought into that olive tree that Israel in the future would be brought back into the same olive tree, that same gracious covenant and church with Gentile nations. Embracing not a different doctrine, embracing not a different form of worship or, or church government, but embracing the same doctrine, worship, and government of the church and discipline of the church. Not rebuilding, again, uh, the temple with God's blessing or reestablishing the priesthood, the sacrifices, or the holy days of the Old Testament. 
Israel will be a Christian nation, like all of the other nations of the world. First uh, quote, John Brown of Womfrey, 1610 to 1679 states in his exposition of the epistle of Paul, the apostle to the Romans. He's looking at Romans 11 verse 26, which says, and so all Israel shall be saved. And he says this, and I quote, then says he, that is Paul, all Israel shall be saved. That is, the whole body of the nation of the Jews shall be brought from under the plague of blindness under which they lay, that is, lay presently, and brought under the gospel and the saving ordinances of Christ into a gospel covenant church state. Herman Vitzius 1636 to 1708, that learned and godly divine from the Reformed Church of the Netherlands says this in his The Economy of the Covenants. Quote, the Jews are in due time to be converted from their rebellion and transgressions. And this is not yet accomplished as to the whole body of the Israelites. And yet the scripture must be fulfilled. The apostle, that is Apostle Paul, has justly inferred that in the last times it will be perfectly fulfilled. For seeing the foundation thereof is God's covenant with Israel. And this is a firm covenant, stable, immutable, and suspended on no ambiguous condition, it is not possible but that everything shall happen exactly according to the promise and prediction that is as found in Romans 11. And this is my covenant with them, saith God. All this being addressed to the whole body of the nation of Israel, it must of necessity be fulfilled at the appointed time. Dear ones, the Lord did not go to the palaces of the mightiest nation on the earth to find himself a royal bride. Nor did the Lord go to the academies of the greatest intellectual nations of the earth to find for himself a wise bride. Nor did he go to the richest of nations on the earth to find for himself a wealthy bride. Nor did he go to the godliest nation of the earth to find a holy bride. No, the Lord stooped, stooped ever so low and set out to woo unto himself an impoverished, idolatrous, obstinate, and enslaved nation to be his own people. Here is a love story in which the Lord takes a nation to be his bride. 
who from the very beginning is infatuated with other lovers. As God is enacting and, and is covenanting with his people, Moses on Mount Sinai, what are they doing down below? But they introduce idolatry. Worship God by means of an image of a calf. But out of God's own covenant love for his bride, he will not utterly forsake her. The Lord showered Israel with his salvation. He bestowed upon her a land, gave her good laws to direct her paths. He appointed her kings like David after his own heart to lead her. He mercifully warned Israel by sending his own prophets to sway them from the backsliding ways that they were on in order to avert the judgment that would come upon them. What more could the Lord do to manifest his love for his bride? Well, I'll tell you what more he could do and that he did do to demonstrate his love for his ancient people. He himself became flesh and dwelt among them. But even then, she did not receive him. John 1.11, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. He not only sent his ministers to convey his love to his faithful bride, but he came himself in person. He healed her sick. He raised her dead. He offered eternal life to her. But what did she do? What did she do? She joined with the Romans to have him beat, scourged, spat upon, mocked, crowned with thorns, and crucified. In return for his love, he received her hatred and her scorn. And still, still our gracious Lord will manifest his covenant love for his ancient people by renewing his covenant of grace in the new covenant with her in the future and granting to her faith and repentance and love and new obedience. Samuel Rutherford, in his letters, describes that time, the joyous time, when Israel will be restored as a people and as a nation unto the Lord. And he says this, and I quote, Oh, to see the sight next to Christ coming in the clouds, the most joyful, our elder brethren, the Jews in Christ, fall upon one another's necks, and kiss each other. They have been long asunder. They will be kind to one another when they meet 
O day, O longed for and lovely day dawn, O sweet Jesus, let me see that sight, which will be as life from the dead, thee and thy ancient people in mutual embraces. Gracious, gracious Lord Jesus, hasten that day. Amen. Please stand with me in prayer. Our gracious God, thou hast given to us in thy word this love story, which is each one of our love stories, because the same thing that thou hast done for Israel, thou hast done for us individually. It is our love story, because we have disbelieve thee, we have shown scorn for thee, we have turned against thee, we have walked our own ways, but thou hast set thy covenant love upon us and thou hast drawn us unto thyself. How we thank thee, our God, for thy gracious, thy merciful love. We rest in it. It is what we cling to thy faithfulness to thy love and thy promises. Lord, we pray as we continue to learn of this story that's found in thy word, help us, our God, to see the great redemptive love of Jesus Christ. May we, our God, embrace it as well, each one. May we not turn against thee. May we not become a part of the, of the rebellious, but God, may we flee to thee as we see the great love that thou dost have for Israel and the great love thou dost have for us, even individually as thy people. Our God, we ask that thou would hear our prayers in Jesus' name. Amen.